Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Thursday. This is Seattle Now. It's no secret that Seattle is an expensive place to live. A big part of the problem is high rent costs. In the past few years, local housing activists have pushed the idea of a rent cap. One version is getting a hearing in Olympia today. In a minute, urban economist Mike Wilkerson will break down the different kinds of rent caps and where the proposed law would fit in. But first, let's get you caught up. Seattle police officer Kevin Dave will not face criminal charges for hitting and killing Jean B. Kandula last January. In a statement yesterday, the King County Prosecutor's Office said that it lacked sufficient evidence under Washington state law to prove a criminal case beyond a reasonable doubt. The head of Boeing's troubled 737 jet program is out as the company tries to rebuild trust. Ed Clark's departure comes just weeks after the Federal Aviation Administration took issue with Boeing's attention to safety. And if you want to visit Mount Rainier this summer, plan to book in advance. The park's first batch of timed reservations opened up yesterday. It's a pilot project to help control crowds. That's it for now. Make sure to join Paige Browning tonight for evening headlines. Eye-popping rent is nothing new for the Seattle region, and the cost of housing is going up virtually every day. The Washington Center for Real Estate Research found that over the last four years or so, average rent for a two-bedroom apartment in Washington has increased 28%. Housing activists have started looking at a rent control, or a cap, as one solution. Former Seattle City Council member Shama Sawant proposed multiple rent control laws over the past four years. The rent control bill that we are putting forward as a draft from our movement will limit annual rent increases to the rent of inflation for all rental homes in the city. Thankfully, we don't have to be the first ones this time because other movements have already achieved incredible historic victories in the last several months. Oregon lifted its rent control ban and passed rent control. California just passed a statewide rent control measure. None of the bills Sawant proposed ended up passing, but sustained pressure from activists and a worsening housing crisis keeps the issue top of mind. From an economist's point of view, the term is complicated. Colloquially, everyone says rent control, but I think oftentimes rent control is used in a negative connotation versus the intentionality around using terms like rent stabilization are meant to paint it in a more positive light. Mike Wilkerson is an urban economist and the director of analytics at Echo Northwest in the Portland area. He says that there are three categories of laws that aim to bring down rents, rent control, rent stabilization, and anti-price gouging. A key component of rent control is a permanent cap on how much rent can be raised. When a tenant leaves, the new tenant comes in, gets that benefit of that difference between that market rate and where that controlled rate is for forever. And over time, that gap grows to be pretty significant. 
This model is what Shama Sawant wanted to implement here in Seattle. It's highly controversial, even in liberal areas. But rent stabilization has become more popular in the past decade to control high rents. A bill that would implement stabilization across Washington is making its way through the legislature right now. It's already passed through the state house. Senators on the Ways and Means Committee are holding a hearing on the measure today as they consider moving it forward. Northwest News Network reporter Jeannie Lindsay reports the bill would cap annual rent increases at 7%, but only when a tenant stays in their unit. Landlords could, under this bill, make rent cost whatever they want in between tenants. But realistically, it's a type of way to control or at least slow down rising rental costs in order to keep people in their homes. The bill wouldn't apply to new units for the first 10 years they're on the market. The laws Sawant mentioned earlier in Oregon and California are rent stabilization measures, similar to Washington's. In Oregon, the law limits annual rent increases to 10%. In most instances, that's not something where a landlord is thinking about increasing rent 10% year over year. So it's there, but it's really to prevent intentional behavior around displacing tenants or things that are more egregious behavior in terms of things like price gouging. Mike is here to help us wrap our heads around these different approaches and where Washington's bill fits in. Mike, appreciate you joining us. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. So we talked about a few different ways regulators can try to keep rents affordable. The goal of Washington's rent stabilization bill is to keep people in their homes. So which one of these mechanisms performs that function the best? That's a great question. You know, I'll take a step back and I say, you know, typically when I'm thinking about public policy, right, it's the what is the root cause of the outcome that we don't like? The outcome we don't like is rent being too high relative to income. That's cost burdening is the best way to measure that. And displacement, typically involuntary due to the fact that people are evicted without cause, etc. And so it's both displacement and lack of affordability. The root cause of those are typically generally driven by the lack of supply and the lack of supply at affordable levels of of, uh, income. And so the question here is limiting the rent for someone who is already cost burdened isn't necessarily alleviating the outcome we don't like. It's a, let's say, on the margin helping slightly. But what we don't like is the fact that someone is spending 30 or 50% of their income on rent they're likely to still do that with rent control. And so that's where when we think about, okay, well, the root cause is we don't have enough housing. What that means is general affordability, right? Pressures aren't relieved. And that's where policies like MHA or inclusionary housing or vouchers or affordable housing that directly target someone's income relative to the rent are the answer. And so I think when we're trying to keep people in their homes, that is the answer. And I think that's where rent control, rent stabilization, or even anti-price gouging falls short, which is it doesn't directly target the benefits to the places that we need them. It's a broad-based solution that certainly helps people. To argue that individuals aren't going to benefit from any, any type of that is wrong. I think the question is, is, is it the best solution? And a harder question is, what unintended consequences are there with that solution relative to other options? And that's where it it gets very complicated, where you're trying to borrow from other examples of places that have policies, what are the lessons we've learned from those places, etc. Well, let's talk about that, actually, right? 
there are rent stabilization laws on the books in Oregon and California. Oregon's was the first in the nation to pass back in 2019. What do we know about the impact those laws have had so far? Yeah, and Oregon is interesting, right? Because I would say, right, the intentionality there was anti-price gouging. And because of that, it, it carved out any unit built within the last 15 years. And so you're looking at only a subset of units for which typically they're already more affordable and where there's a lot of competition. And so already you're introducing some complexities around how you measure outcomes. And then you throw on top of that, 2019 certainly was an interesting year, followed by 2020 with the pandemic, followed by macro market conditions in commercial real estate that drove interest rates much higher, caused a whole bunch of distress. And so when you're thinking about that timestamp from a measurement standpoint, there's probably no worse time to try to understand what actually happened relative to rent control versus these all these other factors that were happening. I think over time, as we get further away from that, we might be able to go in and look at Oregon controlling for lots of factors in relative to other places. A great natural experiment potentially is Vancouver, Washington versus Portland, Oregon, right? Generally the same market. One has rent control, one does not. Is there something we can learn from there? But as of now, I would say we unfortunately don't have a lot of great evidence, let's say, other than anecdotal on kind of what the impact of rent control has been or rent stabilization. Right, right. Terminology matters here. And in the absence of good data, there's always plenty of opinions, Mike. A big concern for people opposed to the rent stabilization bill here is that it may discourage developers from building that precious housing that we need. Do we have any information on how this played out in Oregon? Just straight amount of units that were built decreased, okay? Yeah. However, they decreased everywhere because of the pandemic followed by the commercial real estate disruption. And so I don't think we have any great example of that other than anecdote. And an anecdote, when you talk to the development community and you say, talk to me about the impediments you have today to building housing, you infrequently and almost never hear of rent control as the reason why. That's not to say that it may or may not have a factor. It's just top of mind issues aren't rent control. It's broad market conditions. It's general levels of affordability. It's construction costs. It's permitting costs. It's in the case of Portland specifically, inclusionary housing are all things that come top of mind. You'd have to keep going down that list to get to rent control. And again, that's not to suggest that it did or didn't. It's just that anecdotally, that's all we have at this point. I think we would ideally have more benefit of time to study this more extensively. You said the benefit of time, which often, you know, we don't have. How much time do you think it's going to take to understand more about how this is playing out in Oregon? You know, the question is a good one. I think Oregon, putting it aside for the moment, we can look to another recently enacted policy in St. Paul. They put in what I would describe as rent stabilization, possibly pushing it even beyond more into rent control, and that it did not carve out new, uh, new units from construction and had an annual cap at 3%. So again, we think about flexibility versus more stringent. That's on the more stringent side of policies that have been recently adopted. What they found was, and I think, again, there they have the benefit of a pretty good natural experiment in St. Paul versus Minneapolis being twin cities, and that the permit volume in in St. Paul dropped by much more than it did in Minneapolis. And again, that's pretty anecdotal, and I wouldn't describe that as as a great scientific experiment, but it's a pretty close analogy. 
so much so that they came back and immediately revised that policy two years after it was implemented to say, let's increase the cap from 3% to 8% and let's carve out new construction from being uh, or exempt from, from that policy. So again, how much time do you need there? They, they saw pretty quickly that the, the outcomes that they, they were attributing to rent control being too stringent and adopted a, a policy pivot pretty quickly is probably a, a good example of something we can point to. And the nimbleness of the legislation in that case may have helped, right? That may be important too. 100%. I mean, I think, you know, again, when you're talking about Oregon, it already has been revised since implementation. You're never going to have the benefit of time to say, let's look back at 10 years to try to respond. So being nimble, I think, is always a part of that. Because again, the challenge with housing is most of the benefits of policy that you implement are way out on the time horizon, five, 10 plus years of when you start to see meaningful benefits. And that's the question today when we're facing this affordability challenge is, what do we do with the crisis situation we have? And acknowledging that supply is ultimately the long-term way to get out of this, but you don't get that benefit in year one or in year two. So what do you do in year one and year two? And is rent stabilization benefits right? Is that relative to the potential costs worth the squeeze? And that's where you're starting to see, you know, local jurisdictions, state level preemption kind of start to tackle this in very different ways. Yeah, yeah. Mike Wilkerson, urban economist with Echo Northwest. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Yeah, happy to have the conversation. Thank you for listening to Seattle Now, and extra thanks to the generous listeners who financially support this show. Today's episode was produced by Claire McGrain. It was edited by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. Our production team also includes Paige Browning, Andy Hurst, and Vaughn Jones. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you later. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. 